Welcome to the Retro Hour, episode number 38, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. And me, Ravi Abbott. And thank you so much for checking out the show, guys, whether you're a new listener or maybe you check out the show every single Friday. Of course, we are available on all the big platforms. We're there on YouTube every single week, on all the podcast clients, Stitcher, SoundCloud. Yeah, iTunes as well. And I've noticed on iTunes, where are the comments, guys? Come on, we need to get some more. <laughs> when was that last comment on iTunes, a review? It was about, what, end of August? Yeah, quite a while ago. So if you do listen on iTunes every week, we really do appreciate any reviews on there. They all help get us up the charts and rank up there as well, so they're yep. all very useful, aren't they? And you know, this show, we do strive to bring you the best guests every week as well. Oh, and what a guest we've got this week. We've got Mev Dink. Now, if you're talking industry veterans, they do not come much bigger than Mev. No, he started basically with the, what is it, ZX Spectrum? Yeah, ZX81, I think it was his first experience with it, but... We're actually going to hear it from Mev in a bit. He drove to Sinclair's factory to pick up his first Spectrum. Yeah, and he's been involved in uh, tons of great games like the first Ninja, uh, yeah. first Samurai. Yeah, first Samurai. Last Ninja 2 he did. Last Ninja 2, yeah, um, and Street Racer. Which, to be fair, was, you know, you're talking like, you know, early 90s. I think that was better than Mario Kart. Yeah. Well, yeah, well, I had it at home. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're even going to hear in a bit that apparently Nintendo were getting a few clues from him, weren't they? Coming yeah, over and yeah. examining that at CES back in 1994. And also some obscure stuff that he worked on, like the Conix Multisystem. Yeah, yeah. That okay. was going to be like, that was going to be like the big British system of the late 80s. I remember that advert, Conix Multisystem. <laughs> it's great. Yeah. And obviously it never came out. And Mev was actually quite involved in, you know, working on that system. And we're going to hear a bit more about that. And also, <laughs> if we're talking about, you know, systems that really were disastrous if we're honest the commodore 64 gs oh yeah we know you like them because you found a load of old cheap ones years ago but yeah <laughs> didn't buy them unfortunately no. but yeah so we're going to have mev dink on the retro hour seriously if you love the 8-bit days and also we're going to hear about his uh, plans to remake a couple of his most famous games as well so he's going to be on in around 20 minutes from now can't wait and uh, we just got to say a massive massive thank you to uh, this week's donators as well oh yeah we've had some great donators ian pointer um espentangen and Alison Chataway. Thank you so much for your support of the show, guys. Now, every week we do mention this, that we have a little tip jar, think of it as, on the front page of our website. Any donations will go into the running of the show. And, uh, you know, it's just great to see people supporting the Retro Hour and saying thank you for what we do. And obviously, that goes into, like, you know, our hosting and our SoundCloud subscription, and uh, which I think, you know, we're nearly at the stage where we might not actually be paying to do the show out of our own pockets. <laughs> almost. Not <laughs> almost, quite there, but yeah. Almost, yeah. And we're going to be able to give back to you guys as well, because we're doing a competition at the moment. Now, we are. We mentioned this last week didn't we and it's for these amazing books oh yeah they're the commodore 64 visual compendium and it's the extended edition so it's you know 400 pages of commodore 64 beauty it's celebrating the visual style of the commodore 64 the nice like, kind of coffee table books and yeah yeah they're hardbacks as well and you know freshly printed there's new book smell you know? <laughs> you've been sniffing them have you yeah. <laughs> don't let that put you off <laughs> so uh, if you do want to win one of these books we've got two copies to give away we set this up in the show last week. Lots of entries come through, but there is still time. If you'd like to enter, it's open until uh, October the 1st. And all you have to do is tell us which Commodore 64 game this music is from. Wait for it. You know, you'll be amazed at how many people have got that wrong already. <laughs> Well, you said last week, this is the easiest thing in the world. A lot of people have got it wrong, haven't they? Yeah. We've got five pages of entries as well, guys, already. And there's some wonderful comments in there. Thanks so much to everyone that's entered so far. And there is still time. Obviously, like we said, all of the correct entries will go into a random number generator. We'll pick out two winners. And uh, you can read all the rules and enter this on the front page of our website. And the we're going to announce it on the 40th episode, aren't we, Dan? Yeah, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll give a big shout on the show and obviously get those books out in the post before then as well. Yep. Now, let's get into this week's news. This story was pretty interesting. Um, obviously, Sonic the Hedgehog has got quite a distinctive soundtrack. And, uh, you know, the, the samples in that, you think you'd spot them anywhere? Oh, yeah. How often have you been to America? Never. Never, never been, been to America at all, no. Is I'm that... going to Brazil. If there's any uh, Brazilian Amiga users in Christmas, let me know. <laughs> but I've never been to America. Little t- actually, it was quite a big the Amiga in Brazil, I think, wasn't it? I've got a feeling. Uh, I'm not maybe sure. Maybe I made that up. I don't know. Yeah. Sao but, Paulo. Uh, well, this story is that, and I didn't know this, and maybe, like, you know, we do have listeners in America. Maybe some of them can confirm this. But apparently, hearing the Sonic the Hedgehog, you know, the sample it plays when you collect a ring? Yeah. Apparently, hearing that sample on cash registers, you know, tills, <laughs> Is really common in North America. That's crazy because we just have that one tone. Boop. <laughs> yeah. Well, here, there's a little YouTube video. Have a listen to this. So this is someone scanning. 
a bottle of vitamin water. And here's the sound the till makes. <laughs> Honestly, that is so cool. That is sort of the hedgehog. And all the comments in this YouTube video are, this is real, all Shell petrol stations, some co gas stations, all of them in North America do that. And the reason is, there's a guy who's actually done a bit of digging here on Reddit and he's found out what happened. So the story behind it is, Sega um, actually licensed out a few of their IPs in the early 90s to a company called Sammy, who were a Japanese company. And they made, we've talked about these before, is it the uh, P- Pachinko machines? Oh, yeah, yeah. You've talked about those, yeah, haven't you? So uh... They used to make those, you see, and now it's, it's not that popular. But they used to use apparently some of those samples in those machines, in the arcades. So now what they do instead is they kind of make um, just generic hardware for like North American shops, including um, a lot of these like cash registers. And because we've got access to these samples, they just put that in as like, you know, a scanning sound effect. But um, You would have heard that instinctively, though. If you heard that, you would have, I picked up a ring straight away. But I was looking at it on Reddit and all, there's hundreds of comments going, yeah, I've heard that, yeah, I've heard that. I was like, no, what? I didn't realise it was that widespread. Well, let us know, American listeners. If, if you have the sonic sound on your uh, <laughs> local gas station. I think that's awesome. I love like really obscure stories like that that are just like so weird. It's like, you know. Yeah, that's, that's really obscure. And uh, there was even this thing, um, oh, was it Human Traffic or one of these films? I remember where he's in the shopping centre and he's hearing the beeps. And he's right. kind of dancing along to it. I haven't seen that for <laughs> years. I do vaguely remember the city. The great movie that though as well, isn't it? Yeah. Totally. I mean, the mood to watch it again this weekend now, I think. <laughs> so if you want to check out that video, we'll stick that in the show notes at theretrohour.com. Now, we've often talked on this show about our kind of, you know, preference for using old school monitors like CRTs and our classic systems and stuff like that. But I appreciate not everyone can because, you know, they're, they're really big and they take up a lot of room. Mm. And one of the main reasons to use them was light gun games. Yeah, light gun games. So if you look on Hackaday, Hackaday, they've constantly been trying to defeat this way of playing with a light gun. Because they don't work on LCDs normally, do they? Yeah, they don't work because it's on the CRTs, the cathode ray tubes, it does the scan lines. Mm -hmm. And the gun basically points at the end point of the scan line. So it's, it's... reliable and it's vital to have these scan lines for it to actually work that's how it tracks the gun movement and stuff yeah yes mm-hmm. and um this guy's basically managed to hack it using a wii mote okay. stuck to the side of it <laughs> to do some kind of positioning with the scan lines and he's got a little custom board in there that's clever yeah and he's managed to get it working with an original nes wow okay playing duck hunt on a modern lcd tv so he's got this sensor bar up there at the top. He's got his snare zapper, and then he's just literally sellotaped <laughs> a, a Wiimote to the side and got some custom boards in there, and it's actually working. So I it, love homebrew hacks like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's using a Raspberry Pi and Arduino. You know, he's got all the bits in there, but maybe this could be put into like a smaller unit or a custom gun. Well, you'd imagine what would be good is if you kind of had like, you know, a device that maybe plugged into the front of the NES, and then you kind of plug this into that. Yeah, you know, yeah. a wire trailing to your original um, your, your light gun. That'd be awesome, though. And I think, or, you know, or you could do it with the Saturn or the Dreamcast or something, because I'm sure all the light guns work on the same principle. Yeah. So. Well, it's like, you know, obviously the Wemo, it's a good way of doing it because that does track the movement. And obviously, you put that on top of your TV. Mm. So it, it kind of, you know, knows where, where about you. Well, I guess that's what he's using the Raspberry Pi for, uh, mm-hmm. for the positioning information to communicate with the Arduino. And then it does stuff with the Wemo. It's. Crazy. <laughs> More people will be getting rid of CRTs now, though. Yeah, it's I know. Be a sad day. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I, I often wonder, you know, when will they become rare? When they've all exploded. <laughs> There's only a few left working, I guess. But, you know, it's like in the last decade, so many people have just got rid of them. And I know they made, obviously, millions and mil- maybe even billions of them, you know, throughout the, like, 70s to the mid-2000s. Mm. And it's kind of at the stage now where you don't really see many of them in charity shops and stuff. I mean, five years ago, you'd see what was out in the street, wouldn't you? Like, you know... Well, actually, one thing, I work in contemporary art and uh, I'm an art technician and everybody uses CRTs for displaying art. So in contemporary galleries, you have these uh, galleries, you have these massive CRTs that are like, you know, the really expensive ones, the old Sony ones. Or the PVM stuff. Yeah, 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 yeah. those ones. And they're still used a lot. Oh, wow. Okay. I know there is ways of kind of emulating it, but it never looks as warm to me. Maybe no, I'm no, too much it, of a purist. It hasn't got that hum, has it? <laughs> yeah, if you can't hear it from the next room being on, you know, you hear that high pitch squeal. <laughs> or when you put your hand cool. over the front, getting all that static. Oh, I used to love that. <laughs> <laughs> We're getting maybe a little bit too nerdy now, aren't yeah. we? <laughs> Keep CRT alive. Now, uh, I've got to say a huge thank you to Ron, who uh, sent us a story this week. Now, Ron is one of our US listeners, actually. And 
he only found a podcast recently. He drops a little note through our website and he said he found it about a month ago. He's going through our back catalogue, loves the format, loves the interviews, which, you know, is amazing, Ron. And he actually had an Amiga 1000 back in the 80s. Oh, cool. And he's looking at the, the Bedroom Stabilians um, documentary. He's watched the Amiga one that they put out recently, really enjoyed that. And he noticed that Dale Luck, who was one of the original Amiga designers, was in w- there. Was he the guy that did the boing ball animation, wasn't he, Dale Luck? Yeah, the, yeah. the original one. Yeah, I think he did work on that with RJ Michael, didn't he? Um, and... He said the reason that, you know, he kind of looked at that and he thought, oh, Dale, he actually interviewed Dale Luck back in 1989 for a high school project that him and his friend worked on. (laughs) And it was for, um, he said he did an Amiga documentary for economics class that saved my butt from failing. We interviewed Dale Luck. He said, you know, it was obviously filmed in the late 80s. He was a high school kid. It wasn't massive production values and all that as well. But he's actually uploaded it onto YouTube. Oh, this is so cool. I'm just looking at even the effects that he's using, and it's like the old VHS fades and all of this stuff. I think all the intro was done on the Amiga by the looks of it as well. I recognize a few of those old effects as well. And he's lived in Silicon Valley for most of his life as well. And apparently he missed the 30th Amiga anniversary in Mountain View. He's only found out about it now, which is just down the road from him. Oh, no. Well, I'm adding this to my favorites. I've definitely got to have a watch of that tonight. (laughs) So if you want to get some old school Amiga goodness, an interview with Dale Luck that was, you know, a long lost interview, you could say, that was done back in 89. Yeah, there's only 21 views on this one. Yeah, just, well, we'll stick that in our show notes. All Amiga fans have got to watch this. It's really good work. So thank you for sending us that, Ron. We really appreciate that. And speaking of uh, user-submitted stories, we've had um, a little message here from uh, Yuan, who wanted us to cover fanzines a little ah, bit. Fanzines, yeah, because we were talking about Amiga format and magazines the other day. So fanzines, what are your experiences, Dan? Well, I do read. Um, I feel a Commodore 3. Yeah, I went into work and printed off, like, <laughs> tons of colour pages of that. Yeah, nearly got in trouble. Well, they do. They release Commodore 3, like, uh, once a month at the moment, roughly. And uh, that I think it's up to, like, issue, what's it on now, 94 it's on now? So it's been going a long time, you know, 94 months. And they'll put that out once a month. And it's available. What's cool about it is you can obviously read it on their website and all that kind of thing. There's a PDF. But also you can download it as a D64 file that you can actually read it on a Commodore 64. Oh, wow, that's cool. So that's the way that's I generally really cool. read it, yeah. You know yeah. what I mean? It, it keeps me using my C64 at least once a month. Nice. To Commodore 3. Because I just print it off, but once you print it, you can, you know, staple it and everything. Mm-hmm. And then you've got, it's like a proper magazine. Yeah. You know, just made in some bloke's bedroom. It's great. <laughs> and using your printers at work. Yeah. Ravi, what's all the stuff you're printing out? <laughs> <laughs> but um, he's also submitted a few other interesting fanzines on here as well. I'd heard of a few of these, but apparently there's one called um, Colour Personal Computer, which is an Amstrad CPC fanzine. Oh, nice. Um, it's just been released, the first one this month, and it was actually a successful Kickstarter, apparently. So there is some, obviously, interest behind them. Um, Freeze 64, uh, which is a very nice-looking fanzine for the Commodore 64. Issue 2 is out at the moment. Two more are in the pipeline as well. And also one here called 8-Bit Magazine that he suggested, uh, which covers everything from the Amstrad Atari, Apple, Commodore Sinclair. And that was another Kickstarter with loads of good content about different 8-Bit systems. So... I love that. It's like people making them on the web and then you can physically get it or, you know, read it in whatever medium you like. And uh, maybe people won't be producing Amstrad magazines professionally, so they're Mm. filling the uh, gap there very nicely. And print them out means you can read them on the toilet as well. uh, (laughs) Do it old school. Yeah, any place. (laughs) Using your iPad on the toilet just feels wrong, doesn't it? (laughs) Or your Commodore 64. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, CRT balance on the thing. (laughs) Now, before we get into this week's interview with Mev, you did mention the Amstrad CPC there. And uh, there is a classic game that's been ported to the CPC, a game you never thought you'd see running on the Amstrad. Pimple Dreams. Oh, Pimple Dreams. Wicked music as well. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, it was that um, 21st Century Entertainment, did it, didn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. And I remember, I mean, that originally came out on the Amiga. I actually got it on, um, I've got the iOS version on my iPhone as well, which is really nice. I've got it in the Atari Jaguar. Um, it is one of my favorite pinball games ever. But there is um, a little team here who are doing this. Apparently, I don't think it's quite complete yet, uh, but they're saying that um, they're going to be bringing it out in October. And there's a few screenshots at the moment. Um, if you go to Indie Retro News, they've actually got some of the like colour palettes and stuff like that as well. And some of the graphics look really impressive, actually. I knew the CPC had like these kind of high-resolution screen modes, but actually it's really impressive what they can do with them and just how sharp they look. Yeah, that, that's really, really nice. It looks like um, just high-end kind of uh, high-res graphics on there. You know what's crazy as well? You'd think that, um, you know, a game like, obviously you've got to see what it looks like running and the animation and stuff like that. You'd think that would use, like, probably more potential, you know, system power than the Amstrad CPC had. Yeah. Well, the team here are saying, due to their coding, and uh, apparently this will only use 
40% of the Amstrad CPC's potential processing power to run this game. So, wow. Maybe they should have, uh, <laughs> back in the days, been releasing them. Yeah. Well, I, I don't know much about the team behind it. Um, you know, there, there is a link on it. We'll put this in our show notes as well. Uh, but apparently, they, you know, they're quite regular users of the um, the CPC wiki forums. So if you want to follow the project, I mean, it's due out in a few weeks by the looks of this in October. So, you know, the Amstrad, it's always an interesting platform. I remember my friend Graham when I was at school, he had an Amstrad CPC um, with a green screen monitor. Well, actually, when we're talking to Mev, he mentions how the Amstrad was massively popular in Europe. Yeah. And not actually that much in the UK, which is weird because it's like, you know, Alan Sugar's home, which is uh, the guy behind the Amstrad. I think by the time it came out here, though, because it did come out after the Spectrum and the 64, I think probably they were already too, you know, dominant. I only knew, like, like I said, one kid at school that had an Amstrad, but it's an well, interesting system. Well, I saw in a documentary that Amstrad actually had a strategy of aiming for all the other European countries, you know, France, Spain, and all of these ones, because they knew that the American market was full. Apple and Commodore. Yeah, and yeah. they knew that the British one was with Sinclair, but all these other regions weren't getting addressed, so sneaky Alan Sugar... Sent his uh, machines out there. That's why he's on The Apprentice. Yeah. <laughs> that, that kind of business sense. <laughs> so if you want to find out more about that, it will, of course, go in our show notes at theretrohour.com. And that's it for our news stories this week. Thank you so much for checking out episode number 38 of The Retro Hour. The show will be out again next Friday, as always, available from all your favourite podcast clients. Get the iTunes review in there as well. And, of course, do enter that competition on the website to win a copy of the Commodore 64 Visual Compendium. Right, here we are. This week's special guest, Mr. Mev Dink. Oh, with Last Ninja and Street Racer fame. This is going to be an interesting one, isn't it? For the 8-bit heads, definitely hang around. Here he is on the Retro Hour for the next 40 minutes. And we'll catch you next Friday. Ciao. Listening to the Retro Hour podcast, and it is our absolute pleasure to welcome this week's special guest. Thank you for coming on the show, Mev Dink. Uh, no problem, pleasure. So, Mev, we thought it would be really nice just to start your story, you know, right from day one. What was it that first got you into computers, and where did it all begin? Oh my God, how, how long do we have? <laughs> we can edit it. Yeah, I'm sure you will have to. <laughs> well, to be honest, um, I go way back uh, to 1983. That's when I used to uh, live in Southampton. And at this, at the time, I, I, I was working uh, at a cables factory. Mm-hmm. Anyway, while I was working uh, at this factory, uh, I became very good friends with uh, one of the quality control engineers there, uh, who had the ZX81 at the time. You know, he used to go on, go on uh, about computers and things. And I had absolutely no interest whatsoever. Anyway, one day he just uh, told me that uh, there was this new amazing computer coming out called ZX Spectrum. And he insisted that uh, I, I put my na- name down for it. So he convinced me and we had to wait uh, for about three months. Uh, it was like, uh, you know, when people wait for the new super consoles nowadays. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, those guys that queue up outside for iPhones at like three yeah, in the morning. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, obviously, we didn't have to queue up, but uh, we, 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 we had to wait for about three months. And then he was so uh, overjoyed about the whole thing, uh, we ended up driving to the actual factory, Sinclair factory, to pick up our spectrums. Did you uh, see Mr. Clive Sinclair at all? No, of course not. You know, he just, uh, <laughs> you know, went to the reception, picked up our computers and left. Because, you know, he was so keen to get back home and start fiddling with it, I guess. Well, you said when you first um, heard about his ZX81, you um, you had no interest. So what was it that actually got you interested enough to go for a Spectrum then? Well, to be honest, I mean, he he really made me uh, buy the Spectrum. And at that point, I still had no interest in either computing or gaming. Uh, I didn't play games at all. Anyway, so we ended up uh, getting our Spectrums. Uh, I, I left mine... Uh, lying around in a corner, you know, mm-hmm. in the house for weeks, to be honest. And, uh, you know, he kept on about how wonderful it was. It had color and, <laughs> you know, sound as well. And uh, he used to ask me about some uh, games I didn't know anything about, you know. And I, in the end, he realized that I, I hadn't actually opened the box up. <laughs> so, <laughs> so anyway, he said, look, don't be silly, you know, at least have a look at it and whatever. So anyway, I ended up opening it up and I, this little thing, you know, with a power supply and a little instruction book, you know, 
uh, nothing else. And then suddenly I realized I needed more bits and pieces to get it working. Like I needed a TV. And I, <laughs> I said, so this, you know. <laughs> so I, I, again, you know, I sort of put it to one side and I forgot about it for another week or two. And he actually came around to my house with a 14-inch TV. So he helped me set it all up. And then he told me that I also needed a cassette player <laughs> to load the games in, which, which I thought was hilarious. You know, <laughs> this also, I, It all sounded like a lot of effort to you, then, I imagine, at this point. <laughs> well, well, a lot of effort. And also, you know, like I said, because I had no interest in it, it uh, I wasn't excited about it at all. So he was, like, pushing me all the time. And in the end, I, I sort of I had it all set up and... I, I started reading up the uh, book that came with the uh, computer. And, uh, of course, you know, uh, having come from uh, Turkey, you know, English wasn't my native language, and I was still learning it. Mm. And, of course, I had difficulty understanding all the uh, information in the book. Uh, so it took me ages to get things going, you know, just typing stuff in and seeing it on the screen, and it was just amazing. So it was just a, a start of a massive journey, to be honest. So it was then um, really learning to code that captivated you and got you interested then, in the machine. Yeah, but once I realized it was such a fascinating world, mm. and I, it was obvious that I needed something to really get my teeth into. You know, I wasn't happy, of course, working at a factory, having graduated from university, and of course somehow ended up in England, but I hadn't intended in work in, uh, in, you know, in a factory. Where were you getting your codes from at the time? Uh, well, were you there was this magazine? amazing uh, magazine called uh, Popular Computing Weekly. To me, it's still probably the best magazine ever, you know, for, for people who, uh, you know, who, who were interested in learning to program. Uh, so it, it was a weekly magazine, so we didn't have to wait for a long time, you know, to sort of, get the new issues. Um, so, and a lot of the time, you know, we used to type in uh, this code, you know, the codes from the uh, listings in the magazine, and most of them wouldn't work. Yeah. <laughs> and the number of times I had to retype, I lost count. It was so frustrating and annoying, you know. <laughs> But I that, nearly broke the computer several times. <laughs> that's how you learn, though, isn't it? By going through and looking what you did wrong and... No, well, it's not what I did wrong. It was just like, because there was a lot of... Um, typos in the listings and uh, I don't know if you know anything about the uh, thermal printer spectrum head. Was that the really small one? It was like a till roll yeah, yeah, that came out like, there, yeah. yeah. Obviously they used to maybe print out, you know, using that thermal printer and somehow get it into the magazine or maybe they typed it in and of course made mistakes. <laughs> you had and to wait a week to, until they fixed it, didn't you? Yeah, of course <laughs> we had to wait for the following week where they said, oh, sorry, there, there were some typos and <laughs> there's a correct version. Anyway, uh, it, it took me a month and month to get a few things up and running. So it was just amazing. You know, I thought, what an interesting world, you know. Uh, so that's what really got me interested in, in, in the industry. Uh, by this time, I was still not interested in playing games because, you know, I've never played any games before. So I was just interested in finding out how the whole thing worked and if I could, you know, sort of program it myself and do my own little things, you know. So I started fiddling with uh, the code that I typed in. So I started changing it a bit, you know. So when did it get to the stage when you were kind of at the level where you could start, you know, putting together your own software and like releasing it out there to, to other people? Of course, it was such a long process, you know, it, was, it took me about two years, you know, self-taught, the whole computer, you know, the spectrum. I mean, I, I learned it inside out, I was so good at it. I knew how, uh, the spectrum so well. And then, of course, another interesting thing was that uh, in one of the issues of Popular Computing Weekly, uh, there was this guy who used to write about machine code, you know, as a language. And yeah, the small corner, you know, obviously everyone was using BASIC at the time. And uh, uh, in one of his articles, he said, if you want to become a really good programmer, uh, you need to learn machine code. Forget about BASIC, it's too slow. 
without even knowing the difference between the two, I said, okay, then uh, I will learn machine code. <laughs> so that's what I did. You've just spent two years learning basic and now you've got to start over. <laughs> no, 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 no. I mean, from day one. Yeah, yeah. So I completely ignored basic and I learned machine code from day one. So it took me two years uh, to learn to program in machine code and, of course, the spectrum inside out. And even like coding on the spectrum, I mean, you know, when you had those little rubber keys and stuff like that, I mean, it's, uh, it's crazy to think how much time we used to spend with those little machines and how difficult they actually were to like work on, really. But to be honest, uh, I mean, I, I didn't have anything to compare it with. Yeah. That's, that's what it was, and we just accepted it. I didn't even know it was limited. I compared it with my iPhone 6. It's just ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> the difference is just outrageous. But um, yeah, it was amazing. So at the end of you know the uh, sort of two-year period where I felt you know now I'm, I, I know this machine so well, I could actually write my own games. And and again, I, I must underline this. I, I played very few games by then, but suddenly I, I sort of felt I could write my own games. And then I decided to write my own my first game. And of course, I decided to actually leave the uh, factory. I sort of decided to quit, mm -hmm. which was even more amazing. It was taking, I, I was taking such a risk. And, and then uh, I started working like full time uh, on my first game, which was uh, Jerry the Germ. Well, around this time, I mean, were you kind of aware of the, the industry in the UK? Cause, I mean, obviously we had like, you know, Imagine Software and Ocean and that you'd see documentaries on TV and, you know, there's all these like kids that were suddenly becoming like million and billionaires. Were you kind of aware but, of all this going on? But to be honest, Van, uh, at the time, we didn't have any millionaires. Mm -hmm. Maybe one or two publishers, they made good money, but uh, a lot of games were bought by publishers for like £1,000 or £2,000, which I found later on, you know? once I got involved in it. Um, I knew about Imagine, Imagine, you know, because I loved their uh, game uh, Arcadia. Even though I didn't play games, it was one of my favorite games. I really liked what they did, you know. It was such a quality game, both technically and visually on the spectrum. And then I, and then I, I went to one computer show up in uh, London, I think it was in Earl's Court or somewhere, like really primitive uh, fair. It was like a, you know, little market. <laughs> That's when I met uh, Tony Rainbird of uh, Firebird, yeah. you know, Telecom Soft. And I showed them my demo. I'd, I'd, I'd done a very good demo on the Spectrum, which was like a graphics uh, editor, sprite editor and animator of all things. It was like... Unreal, you know, so you could actually make your own sprites and animate them. And I actually tested it on my wife. You know, she didn't know anything about computers, but she could actually, you know, create really nice sprites because she was really good at drawing. And I thought, well, if, you know, if someone who doesn't know anything about computers can pick up what I've done and learn it so quickly, means, I'm, you know, I'm doing something right. So you were creating development tools as well as software. Yeah, yeah. well, I mean, that was my first uh, professional work, really. And and Tony Rainbird was so impressed with it. And he, he said, well, this looks really professional. Well done, he said. If you decide to do a game, please let me know. So that gave me a lot of encouragement. Uh, when I decided to leave and do my first game, which was Jerry the Germ. Jerry the Germ had a very... Um kind of c64 spectrum -y feel with uh the storyline you know jerry failed to get his stink bloma so he's going around and uh you know infecting humans until he deserves one it's kind well, of that comical vibe uh was that you know a deliberate well, thing yeah because it was my first game uh, i felt i had to do something different and unique you know i was very confident about the programming side I knew that technically it would be good because of what Tony said and what uh, anyone else around me, you know, who saw what I was doing, uh, encouraged me, of course, in terms of programming. But, of course, in terms of ideas and originality and all that, because I didn't even play any games, it was just a natural thinking on my part, you know, that I should do something very different and, and also a little bit uh, controversial, maybe you know, to get attention. 
So I thought uh, all the games that I looked at, I saw you had a hero, you know, beating up baddies or killing baddies, whatever. I thought maybe I could do something completely different. You know, I could have a germ. <laughs> you know, to, uh, and then you have to help it, help it to destroy the human body. So it was quite controversial, I guess. I imagine it was the first game of its kind. I've never heard of another one like that. Well, exactly. Yeah, it was like uh, I remember. Uh, I think I, I took it to Microsoft as well, and then they literally threw me out of the office. <laughs> they said, "You must be joking. We cannot publish something like this. You know, we are a reputable company." <laughs> I thought I was so disappointed, but Tony loved the idea. You know, that's the difference. You know, he was a lot younger. You know, he was such a young, you know, sort of managing director of the company, and he also liked what I did, and he. he you know, signed it up. And it took me eight months to finish the Spectrum and Amstrad versions because Amstrad CPC came out soon after I started. So it was like very similar to Spectrum. It was the same uh, processor. So it didn't take me long to learn it. So I could do, you know, like two formats at the same time. I was like halfway through and I went back to Tony and said, look, I could do the 64 version as well. I could find the 64 programmer to help me. And he said, well, that sounds great. Suddenly I was doing three formats in 1985. Uh, that's great because you kept with that kind of free format formula. Um, when yeah, you- yeah, indeed, yes, absolutely. So I had a brilliant start. And by the way, I just remembered Tim Boone, a local guy, young guy at that time, of course, <laughs> uh, he did the graphics for me. And he went on to become one of the editors of CNVG. I don't know if you remember his name. The magazine, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So he, he did my uh, graphics. Uh, well, some of the graphics were outstanding. So, uh, well, yeah, when you think about you know, the time, you know, it's quite, uh, quite nice. Yes, thank you. Yeah, um, the uh, isometric games, particularly with the uh, smooth scrolling. Yeah, I mean, like, of course, I had a fantastic start. I mean, it was a, it was a very difficult game. I mean, uh, of course, not playing games, I didn't know what was difficult, what was easy, you see. And I couldn't even play myself and judge whether it was easy or difficult. <laughs> so so uh, it was a very tough game. And, uh, of course, the magazines uh, really marked it down because of that. But technically, they gave it very high marks, you know, which was very pleasing. And also graphically, you know. And so... It, you know, it wasn't a huge success as such, but it gave me a lot of confidence. So I learned a lot from my first game. And also I was very lucky to have, of course, Telecom publish it because they gave me such a good, fair contract, you know, because I knew that a lot of programmers were not getting a lot of money. So I had a very good start. Then I, like with my second game, as I was finishing... Jerry the Germ, I had this idea about doing something even more spectacular, more ambitious, because I was so confident technically. And all the sort of technical feedback I got on Jerry the Germ sort of encouraged me even more. And I ended up doing Prodigy, like the first ever you know, 3D isometric scrolling game, mm-hmm. which was quite impressive, to be honest. Of course, I, I forgot to mention that I was involved in the famous 3D ant attack conversion to 64. Yeah, which looks astonishing for the company oh, yeah. of 64. So, I, I, I had met Rod Cousins, you know, who was the managing director of Electric Dreams, which was owned by Activision. And then they were based in Southampton. So when I decided to do Prodigy, uh, you know, Rod Cousins, he, he wanted to publish Prodigy because... You know, I was, he was very impressed with the uh, help I gave on 3D Ant Attack. And, uh, and of course, Telecomsoft wanted it too, which was why amazing. You know, I thought, wow, this is my second game. And so sort of I have two publishers fighting for me. <laughs> so it was a great feeling. Well, you mentioned a moment ago about the magazines as well. I mean, at the time, you know, obviously this was like pre-internet and all that as well. Did you pay a lot of attention to the magazine scores then, and did they kind of, you know, affect you personally then? Of course, you know, I, I mean, magazines were even more important in those days because there were only a few, 
uh, only a handful of magazines. So everybody bought them and everybody read them, including the uh, developers. So, you know, I'm sure it was very important for the gamers uh, what the magazine said. And it was also important for us. So, yeah, definitely. Was it quite a nervous wait, waiting for the issue to come out then with your review in there? Oh, of course, yes. <laughs> and, uh, it was, of course. And, of course, you know, the magazines, you know, I mean, they could be really harsh, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there was, of course, you know, the whole thing was so new. We were all sort of learning it together. I mean, I, I always had a very good relationship with the press. Uh, from very early on, I realized the importance of the press. Well, a, a big license that you got was a Nightmare, which was a British TV show that we both used mm. to love as kids, watching oh, that. Indeed. Well, that was amazing, yeah. It was, it was such a groundbreaking, you know, TV show. So, like, just before Nightmare, uh, I also did uh, a game called Injure Eraser. For some reason, uh, the original Spectrum programmers didn't want to do the Amstrad version. I still don't know why, but I ended up doing it. I actually emulated the Spectrum on the Amstrad because Amstrad was a little bit more powerful in terms of processing and it had more memory. So I had this clever idea of literally using almost all of the Spectrum code. And I ended up uh, doing the conversion in three weeks and Activision was just gobsmacked, you know. Uh, They needed it for... uh, Christmas and I, I so of course they managed to release it on time and I they gave me really good money for doing such a good job uh, of course I was uh, one of the top programmers for Activision to work with you know so they always offered me their top titles so they offered me Nightmare and I thought well this is a great game to do uh, I always wanted to do my own games but uh, because of my relationship with Activision and Rod Cousins, they always gave me like really uh, enticing, good titles that I had difficulty refusing, you know. Well, did you watch Nightmare on TV as well? Did you, you were aware of the show before? No, no, yeah, of course I watched it. And uh, my good friend John Dean uh, designed the uh, computer version, actually. Mm-hmm. So that I also helped. But, uh, of course, we couldn't, you know. Uh, replicate the TV show. It was just amazing. Uh, Very ahead of its time, to be honest. So, it was a very clever design, really. Uh, We had some nice ideas and things, and yeah, I'm I'm very pleased with the results, to be honest. I always feel like Nightmare is one of those kind of games that they could revisit now, because computers today could do it justice, couldn't they? Oh, God, yeah. Yeah. I mean, now you could do a fantastic job. Another good example is actually uh, one of my own time machines. I mean, we had such a difficult time doing it on the Amiga, but now it would be so easy and I'm so tempted to do it maybe in the future, hopefully. Oh, that'd be amazing. I I will remake it, definitely. It's such a great idea and perfect for today's technology, to be honest. And then, of course, after Nightmare, uh, after having done all these, like, uh, good work, you know, in, in short time, and I was, like, making a name for myself, and then I was offered Last Ninja. Yeah. Again, by the, by that time, you know, I said, look, come on, guys, I want to do my own games, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to sort of keep, you know, do, rescuing your failed, uh, you know, projects. And Last Ninja 1, of course, was a huge hit on the 64. And, you know, including me, everyone was so amazed by it, you know. It was such a fantastic game. And but Spectrum version never came out. It was delayed all the time and whatever. And then they asked me to help with it. And I said, no, you know, I can't help uh, because, you know, I wasn't impressed with what I'd seen. It was it had nothing to do with the uh, original 64 version. You know, it was too far away from it. It, it wasn't doing it justice. So. I said, I don't want to get involved with this at all. But they kept insisting on it. And then I heard that System 3 was about to start developing Last Ninja 2. So I I made a counteroffer. I said, look, I'm not interested in uh, Last Ninja 1, but I would be very keen to work on Last Ninja 2 from day one, along with the 64 version, 
you know, hopefully contributing to the uh, design as well, you know. And I could do Spectrum and Amstrad uh, versions at the same time. And uh, Mark Gale of System 3 said, what about Last Ninja 1? You know, we advertise it in magazines for months and everyone's waiting for it. I said, look, you could just tell them it's not good enough. It's not up to System 3 standard and you're, you've decided to cancel it. I said, you'd get, you know, good credit for it. And that's what he did. Uh, he said, yeah, please, uh, if you want to, as long as you do Last Ninja 2, uh, you know, I'm going to cancel Last Ninja 1. So that's what uh, he did. And I ended up working on Last Ninja 2 from day one. And it's one of my best works, really. It's got those uh, beautiful isometric graphics still. Yeah. yeah, it was amazing. Yeah, I mean, I, of course, uh, Gary Thornton did the graphics with my editors and all that. You know, of course, uh, in the old days, we had to do everything ourselves, as you, as you know. Mm -hmm. uh, for Last Ninja 2, I had to write uh, a level editor, graphics editor, everything. And Hugh Riley, to me, probably the best pixel artist ever. You know, anywhere in the world. Well, I was going to say, you know, that Last Ninja 2, the Spectrum port of that, I mean, you look at it graphically, and obviously it hasn't got the colour palette that the Commodore 64 version has, but it's still really smooth, and the animation on that is stunning for the Spectrum. But, uh, apart from the colour, yeah. you know, in, in, uh, in some ways, it was even smoother than uh, 64. You know, it was faster in, in some ways, because I could do, like, amazing things on the Spectrum, some things that cannot be done you know, on the 64. Of course, it had uh, hardware sprites, which was a great plus for for the uh, 64. But making up the, uh, you know, levels, backgrounds was very difficult on the 64. And if you can remember, uh, it was drawing it up, you know, slowly. Yeah. It was building the level up. <laughs> and everyone thought, well, what a clever way to do it. But of course, John Tweedy, he did it on purpose, you know, because he couldn't do it any faster. But on, on, on the Spectrum, I could do it almost instantly. And I jokingly, I said to John, I said, look, I don't want to make you look bad. So I'm <laughs> going to do nice, fancy, you know, fading in and out <laughs> between the screens. And that's what I did. <laughs> I remember around that time, you know, being at school and obviously you worked on both machines, but I remember there was like quite a big Commodore 64 and Spectrum rivalry at my school. Did, did you ever like fall down on one side? Which which one did you prefer then or, or, or were you kind of split well, between? To be honest, that, that rivalry still goes on today, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Which is nice. You know, it's fantastic in the retro gaming community. And of course, my stance as a professional developer, I, I, I love both machines, mm -hmm. although I learned everything... <clears throat> about programming and gaming and things on the spectrum. So it has a special place, you know, in my heart. But I love both machines. They're, you know, they both have uh, strengths and weaknesses, but they were, they were, they were both uh, amazing machines and instrumental, you know, in, you know, sort of moving the gaming forward. Um, what did you think the first time you saw a Commodore Amiga? Oh, now, of course, yeah, Amiga was, you know, like a game changer, you know, I reckon. Uh, but uh, I, I, I actually uh, attended uh, Amiga 30 UK mm -hmm. last, last year in August. And I said it there, and I'd, I'd like to repeat it here. Um, of course, Amiga was such a great machine, but it was never intended as a gaming machine. You know, Commodore business machines. They actually, you know, released it as a business machine, and a lot of people, a lot of magazine publishers, or or, or people who were interested in music, whatever, you know, that's what they were using it for. But especially in the UK, like companies like Signosis, Vivid Image, uh, you know, games. I should mention games, maybe like Shadow of the Beast, mm -hmm. First Samurai, again, one of ours. Hurricane 2 and bitmap games, you know, bitmap brothers games like Speedball, Gods. Those games really made Amiga what it is, a great gaming machine. Well, was this the period that you decided to help found Vivid Image? Well, actually, yeah, yes, we found Vivid Image uh, in 1988 uh, when I met 
John Tweedy and Hugh Riley, of course, while working on Last Ninja 2. Uh, I had made it absolutely clear from day one to Mark Cale, the boss of System 3. I said, look, I'm going to do this and then move on, you know, do my own things, because that's what I enjoy doing the most. But I'm doing this because this is such a great, you know, title and it will cement my reputation in the, you know, games programming development. And, and then, of course, uh, I also shared my uh, wish to, you know, go back to doing my own games uh, with John Tweedy and Hugh Riley too. And of course, we became such close friends. I actually moved up to uh, Watford and I, uh, we, John Tweedy and I shared a house together. So we worked together and things. I mean, we made such a great team, to be honest. So the three of us were doing three versions um, and we were working together, helping each other, you know. So I said, look, you know, uh, I'm thinking of setting up my own company. And they loved the idea and they said, yeah, they would be on. So we decided to um, set up Vivid Image after finishing Last Ninja 2. I know when you were at Vivid, one of the things that you did work on that was about a year later, about 1990-ish, I imagine, that was the um, the development for the Commodore 64 game system, the, the cartridge only system that came out. Indeed. How right? did that come about then? Well, of course, I mean, uh, as Vivid Image, we had a very good relationship with um, Commodore because, of course, we did Hammerfist. Uh, that was our first game. I, I wasn't 100% happy with Hammerfist, even though technically it was absolutely amazing. It really... Uh, made good use of the Amiga, both technically and visually. Hugh Riley did amazing, you know, things with the graphics and things. But when you compare it to Last Ninja 2, you know, what we'd done on the 64, I wanted something more impressive. Uh, but it looked like a console game. That's why a lot of people said, which was nice. And at that point, Amiga, uh, of course, was, like, very strong. But Commodore, we're also talking about turning Commodore 64 into a console. And we were very close with them. And, you know, uh, we got involved in, you know, helping them out. And uh, we did the development system for it. And all the games that were put on the, you know, 64 GS cartridge, you know, went through our system, our development system. What did you think of the idea of the uh, turning the Commodore 64 into a console? And I mean, it, it was quite late in the Commodore 64's life that they did that, wasn't it? Like you said, 1991, it was... Um... Well, I mean, the idea was good, to be honest. That's why we were involved, you know. But believe me, at the time, and I said this uh, several times elsewhere in, in my interviews, you know, uh, unfortunately, everybody jumped on the bandwagon and just redid what they had on it, you know what I mean? Yeah. You know, like to, to sort of for quick cash. And then Commodore didn't mind, mind it that much either. They should have really invested in original games, which really took advantage of the fast loading. Obviously, the cartridge brought fast loading, which was very important. But unfortunately, nobody really did anything original, you know? I, so, do, I do remember famously some some games were released on it and you put the cartridge in it and say, like, press one to start the game and obviously it had no keyboard. Exactly. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. So, Shovelware. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's such a shame, really. It was a good idea, but uh, a little bit too late and also not enough support in terms of doing original specific games for it. Do you know what's crazy, though? Have you seen how much they sell for now? I've no idea. To be they honest. go for about five hundred pounds on eBay. Wow, <laughs> it's ridiculous. I should have kept mine. <laughs> <laughs> I remember my, lo- my local Tandy was selling them for about twenty pounds each back in about ninety four. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, unbelievable. Yeah, should have stuck uh, up. <laughs> yeah, we, we've you know we sold about fifteen or twenty development systems, which was very nice. You know, yeah. we made quite a bit of money out of it. You always seem to have quite very high quality of games with Vivid Image. Um, were you aiming to get that kind of arcade? Uh, replica style or games console style? Well, of, of course, we were also involved with uh, Koenix. Do you know Koenix Multisystem? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, Koenix, yeah. F- famously no. never came out, did it? Got closer, didn't it's it? such a shame. Again, yeah. uh, really uh, sad story, to be honest. It could have been the 
Council of Europe. Again, we were very much involved in it. Uh, we were one of the early uh, developers, and I was very much involved in it. And my good friend John Dean was coordinating it all. And I actually uh, personally coded the uh, Amethyst, oh, and wow. I was like racing with the competing, I should say, with the Amiga version. And then my version was better, <laughs> you know, which was quite nice. I, we were very much involved with the sort of design as well. Like uh, we encouraged them to put more RAM in it. It was 128K RAM. They made it into 256K. And then we asked them to put hardware mirroring and flipping and all that, you know, to, to make good use of the memory and things like that. So we were very much involved with it. And I'd almost finished the game, to be honest. And Amethyst was heavily used in almost all the uh, promotional demos. I remember seeing the videos and stuff, yeah. And then yeah, yeah. I, mean, I, I was excited it, for it coming out, then it just never happened. Oh, God, I was so disappointed. I mean, I spent almost eight, eight months coding it. And it's sad, really, it was a good machine. But unfortunately, uh, the guy who designed it uh, just couldn't agree with any of the people who were interested in investing money in it, including well, Amstrad and IBM. Well, if you have one of those lying about. <laughs> the funny thing is, you know, when I went back to Turkey in, at the end of 2000 to start the gaming sector there, unfortunately, I lost everything, including my original Spectrum, which is really, really sad. No, and of course, all my, you know, 64, you know, GS uh, and Conix development system. I should oh, I have kept them all, you know, but yeah. I, I lost them all, unfortunately. Well, I know a lot of the guys from the Connex went to work like on the Atari Jaguar afterwards, didn't they? That was a lot. Yeah, yeah, and they also set up their own uh, development houses as well. Mm. I think one of them was called ATD, really good people, attention to detail or something. They're a really good uh, bunch of guys. So um, with Vivid... Uh, were you kind of expecting your games to be hits? Because you must have had a string of hits. Well, yeah. because I had such a great uh, freelance uh, professional career up to that point, you know, with Enjoy Racer, Last Ninja 2, Nightmare. So there was a lot of expectation, of course. And then also, and also you know, John Tweedy, Hugh Riley, and myself, like uh, such a formidable team in everyone's eyes, you know. Uh, so there was a huge expectation. And also we did have very high standards. And I always, you know, tried to sort of uh, do something special with every title that we were involved in. So First Samurai, Street Racer. So always pushing it, you know, doing something unique. But again, you know, like with Street Racer, it was first of a simultaneous four-player split-screen game on, on the SNES. Did you get um, much reaction from Nintendo for Street Racer then? Oh, God. <laughs> uh, I, I never forget uh, when, of course, uh, I gave the game to Ubisoft. Everybody was surprised that I did that because at the time Virgin Games, Virgin Interactive, was the biggest publisher. Everybody expected me to give it to them, but I didn't because I thought they would be impressed with Street Racer, but I didn't know how much until it was finished, which is too late. You know, you need full support from day one, you see, from the publisher to make something really big uh, in terms of, you know, hyping it, marketing it and everything else. So Ubisoft, uh, I had a brief uh, relationship with them uh, when I did uh, the PC version of First Samurai. Well, of course, when Microsoft went down in 1991, almost one week after First Samurai came out, we couldn't uh, sell any more copies because Microsoft went into receivership. And I had this amazing game, you know, in my hand, game of the year, but I wasn't making any money. Along with the image, uh, Sensible Software and Bitmap Brothers, we were all in really big trouble. We could all go under, you know, because of Microsoft. Um, and then I had to save the company and I, I had this idea of, doing the Amiga version on the PC. And that was my like first attempt at coding on the PC. <laughs> it took me three months, you know. I worked day and night. 
and I actually converted the Amiga version. Uh, of course, Amiga was a 68,000 processor and PC 8086, which is completely different. So I had to do a, almost line-by-line line conversion from the Amiga to PC. It was really crazy. It took me three months. Ubisoft published that, and they were really impressed that I managed to do that in three months. I was going to say it's on a, a, a lot of platforms, you know, Sega Genesis, Game Boy, Saturn, oh, course, PlayStation. Yeah, yeah, late, yeah, yeah, later on. And then, of course, that's, you know, really helped, helped me save the company, to be honest. So I had that relationship with Ubisoft. They're really impressed. And I mean, most publishers, you know, uh, really liked Vivid Image, our professionalism and the way we conducted our business and things. So everybody wanted to work with us, which is luxury to have, to be honest. Anyway, so I knew Ubisoft were very keen to become a publisher. And uh, I decided to give Street Racer to Ubisoft. And uh, at the time, they only had Street Racer and Rayman. So I thought they would put everything behind those two games, which they did, to be honest. So we launched the game for the first time in uh, Chicago in 1994, Mm -hmm. like uh, CES. Like that was uh, the first important CES, really. And Ubisoft did an amazing job. You know, they had this fantastic stand and like I said, it was their showcase title. You know, they didn't have anything else. They put everything behind it. And suddenly, everyone was talking about Street Racer. And then, of course, Nintendo, who were right opposite Ubisoft, they heard about Street Racer. And, of course, they had Mario Kart. I could see these uh, Nintendo people in suits, you know, coming over <laughs> with their notepads, taking down notes. Oh, wow. <laughs> yes, looking at this huge video wall, you know, split screen, you know, four people playing. They couldn't believe it. Of course, I, I was like uh, cleverly uh, sort of standing behind them and then listening into their conversation. And they were asking the uh, Ubisoft staff about the game, you know, and the Ubisoft uh, guy was telling them, you know, it's only eight megabit. You know, they asked the size of the cartridge and they said, Wow, oh, <laughs> you couldn't believe it, you know, eight million bit, because Donkey Kong Country was 32. Wow, okay. It was crazy, you know. <laughs> Four players per screen, they said DSP chip, because Mario Kart used a DSP chip, which helped with the maths, you know. Nintendo cleverly had this facility to add DSP chip on the cartridge, which made the cartridge more powerful. So you could do more with the hardware. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I think I, I believe Mario Kart was 30 frames a second. So we had the game already running in 60 frames a second in two-player mode without the DSP chip. And then uh, we, we realized we could do four-player. And this Chris West, he was an amazing programmer. So he turned up one day with four-player split screen, all running in 60 frames a second. Nobody had seen that before. Never. You know, it was unbelievable. Of course, we went on to do eight-player versions mm-hmm. on the uh, next-gen consoles, <laughs> Sega Saturn and PlayStation 1. Moving on to today, Mev, um, sure. I've, I've heard that you're up to, uh, you've got plans to remake Street Racer and First Samurai. Is that correct? That's correct, indeed. Now, of course, at the end of 2000, I decided to go back to Turkey, to my native country, because there was no game development to speak of at the time. People knew me, but Mevdink, because my full name is Mevlut. So though I spent the next 13, 14 years in Turkey. Uh, I started from scratch, you know, a new studio, a uh, new team, everything else. So now there's a huge uh, gaming sector in Turkey, especially the mobile gaming is massive there, you know, with 25 million gamers. So anyway, I, I quit in 19, uh, 2013 because I sold my company to, to Telecom. It's like the British Telecom of Turkey. And then I decided to move back to the UK, to contact some of my old team members to see if we could set up a small studio, like a startup. I really enjoy challenges, you know. I used to get a lot of inquiries about my, of course, old games, you know, including First Samurai and Street Racer. So for a long time, I've been thinking about remaking them anyway. So now I'm in the process of, setting up a new studio and remaking 
both street race and first sunrise. So is it just right at the beginning then? Has any work started on it yet then? Or? Well, we are like uh, getting ready for Kickstarter, mm-hmm. uh, getting some materials ready for Kickstarter. I haven't announced it officially because, you know, I still haven't uh, set up the company, but I'm hoping to do that uh, very, very soon. So hopefully I will first officially announce the uh, new studio and then announce the, uh, you know, first title that. Uh, will go up on uh, Kickstarter campaign. Which way round are you going to do them then? Do you know yet? Um, it looks like uh, First Samurai will be first, cool. as the name suggests. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it'd be rude not to really, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah. So, and it's, it's the correct order anyway. It's like Samurai and then Street Racer, so... Oh, well, Mev, we're, we're really excited to, you know, obviously see First Samurai and Street Racer come back as well. We'll have to, you'll have to let us know when the Kickstarter's up and we'll yeah. give it a mention on the oh, show. Oh, I will, yeah, because I, 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 I will ask you to of course, support me because I really need uh, everyone's support, you know? Absolutely, it'll be our pleasure. It's absolutely brilliant that, you know, you do all this work. And a lot of people ask me why I'm so readily, you know, uh, giving interviews and, you know, things like that. And it's you guys, you know, who are doing us a big favor by keeping our memories alive. What you're doing, you know, this retro gaming community is an amazing thing. When you consider, like, First Samurai came out 25 years ago, and now I'm remaking it because I'm feeling all this vibe about it, you know, from the retro community. And and also, I'm sure a lot of new gamers will be impressed with what we will do. There's not many jobs you can do where, you know, you did something 25 years ago and people still remember it and, like, talk about it all the time. Exactly, exactly. (laughs) So we are not, like, you know musical bands we don't perform our work you know we don't go on a stage and you know do our work so we just create it and then just put it out you know you know on the market and hope that people will like it and play it for as long as possible and if people want to keep in touch with you Mev where can they find you on uh, on Twitter Facebook you on those oh yeah I am indeed yes I'm very active too on Twitter Mev Dink thank you so much for coming on this week Mev it's been amazing talking to you well thank you so much for having me I, I really enjoyed talking to you and keep up the good work